It's an early Friday morning in the West Branch neighborhood. That's a residential area in northwest Houston. It's still dark out, and the area is quiet and calm, as captured on a home security camera. People are doing what they do around four in the morning. The early birds are awake and headed to work, and many are still sound asleep in their beds. An industrial warehouse right next to this residential neighborhood explodes. It's the Watson Grinding and Manufacturing Facility. A shockwave from the explosion slams into the home of Gilberto Mendoza Cruz, who's asleep along with his wife, his 12-year-old son, and his 6-year-old daughter. The ceiling collapses on him. He goes to the ER and is eventually released. But his home is destroyed, so his family moves to a hotel. And two weeks later, Cruz dies, his lawyer says, from those injuries. Two Watson employees were at work early. Gerardo Castardena, a father of four. And Frank Flores, a father of two. They're both killed in the explosion. At least 18 people are injured. More than 470 homes are damaged. Some of them become unlivable. People pull out their phones to document the destruction. These videos were gathered by a law firm and shared with news media. The footage shows doors blown off their hinges, shattered windows and collapsed ceilings. Twisted pieces of metal, broken glass and insulation are strewn across the floors. Water drips down from broken pipes. People walk over the debris and through the empty gaps where their front doors used to be to see what's going on outside. The damage stretches for blocks and blocks. This explosion happened one year ago, January 24th, 2020. And I was just convinced uh, it was an atomic bomb. Frank Peters was awake. He was thrown against a wall as his house was shaken off its foundation. His first thought... The Trump administration knew it was coming. Iran promised vengeance for the U.S. killing of its top general, Qasem Soleimani. An attack on the United States. Earlier that month, the U.S. assassinated a top Iranian general. You know, a dirty bomb or something, uh, terrorism. Felt like a bomb. Nearby, Julio Granillo was also awake, watching TV as his wife got ready for an early morning shift at work. I was afraid. First, you know, you got kids and you think maybe your kids involved in something that you don't know. So for a moment, I was shocked and I didn't know what to do. Then I said, man, I need to go. The front door of my room, it, it flew out. And so I went to his room and uh, I opened the door and I said, hey, son, you OK? After making sure his son was OK, he ran downstairs where the windows were shattered and the front door was blown out. He stepped outside to see what was going on. I started seeing a lot of people coming out in the neighbor. So we started looking the opposite way, the, the east side, and we see all the smoke going up. This type of smoke is a familiar sight in Houston, the aftermath of an industrial blast. But Peters and many others didn't even know this could happen here in West Branch. And so my brain really couldn't compute what would happen. He had recently renovated his home, but it was blown apart. You know, the whole house moved a few inches the whole way. Um, you know, st- sheetrock was popped out. I mean, it was just uh, like nothing I could ever imagine. Um, and so I think it was about 4, 4.24 in the morning. Um, and uh, just the house was totally destroyed. Uh, nails everywhere popped out. Um, I was devastated emotionally, uh, still trying to compute what just happened. 
One year later, three families are still mourning the loss of a family member. Other residents are still trying to rebuild, living in homes with cracked walls and makeshift supports as they wait for insurance money to come through or try to rebuild themselves. And this explosion, as devastating as it was, did not come close to some other chemical disasters in Texas in terms of scale, damage, death, disruption of daily life, and environmental fallout. Right, because Texas has definitely seen much, much bigger explosions. Elevated levels of benzene were detected near the scene of a massive fire at a petrochemical storage facility. Now let's go to Texas, where authorities are investigating a chemical plant explosion that could be felt for miles. It feels like a familiar story. Explosions at a chemical plant in Texas. When the blast happened at Watson Grinding and Manufacturing, it was the fourth chemical disaster to rock Houston in less than a year. The same industry that's brought high-wage jobs and economic dominance to Texas has also brought deadly explosions and fires. Texas Public Radio and Houston Public Media spent the past half year reporting on chemical disasters in Texas, filing open records requests, combing through investigation reports, talking to victims, first responders, investigators, and elected officials, visiting the sites of these accidents and meeting with community advocates. To answer that question, why so many explosions? And to find out what, if anything, is being done to prevent more. I'm Dominic Anthony Walsh with Texas Public Radio. And I'm Katie Watkins with Houston Public Media. This is part one of Fire Triangle, our four-part investigation into chemical disasters in Texas. It's been one year since the Watson grinding and manufacturing explosion shook Houston's West Branch neighborhood, damaging more than 470 homes. Julio Granillo is still waiting for insurance money to repair his house. He says when the insurance company first came, they offered him a check for just $15,000. They came over here and they looked at everything and said, here. So they wrote me a check for $15,000. So then the contractor says, hey, this is not, not even nothing enough for you to don't cash that check. He said, don't do nothing. Just uh, get uh, somebody that knows about it. So Granillo says he got a public adjuster and is still waiting to hear back from the insurance company. The contractor says the repair costs will likely be more than $100,000. I met up with Granillo in December, and he showed me the damage to his house that he's been living with for the past year. We walk into the kitchen where there's a wooden frame with three pink beams stretching from the oven to the fridge. And then here in the kitchen... As you can see, we got this frame over here holding, making sure the the whole ceiling, the whole wall didn't come down. And it busted here behind. It busted over there where the uh, kitchen is, the wall. And it cracked the, the glass of the stove. He opens the kitchen cupboards to show me how the explosion blew parts of the outside walls off his house. He's put aluminum foil there to keep mosquitoes and the outdoors from coming inside. We go up to the second floor. He points to a chunk of the ceiling that's still dangling down, exposing insulation from the attic. The ceiling is coming down, so that could kind of really kind of dangle. You can be walking up there and some piece of dust can come and fall hard on you. For now, Granillo is patiently waiting for the insurance money. He's excited about the day he can finally repair his house. 
In the meantime, there's a federal investigation into what caused the explosion. That's still going on. And there are a lot of different lawsuits working their way through the courts. All three families who lost a parent are suing. There's also lawsuits for injuries and damage and destruction of property. And Harris County filed a lawsuit against Watson, alleging it violated numerous air pollution and emissions laws. But these cases could take a while. The company filed for bankruptcy, which complicates everything. And because of the lawsuits, Watson Grinding and Manufacturing declined our request for comment. So back to Frank Peters on the morning of the blast. We were walking down the street and all the houses were just totally destroyed. I mean, it was like nothing. Our brain still couldn't compute what was happening. Peters moved into his father's house. His insurance company hasn't paid his claim, and he doesn't think they will. He's also part of an ongoing lawsuit against Watson grinding and manufacturing. Obviously, he wishes his insurance company would compensate him. But more than that, he wishes he had known that an explosion could happen. He and hundreds of his neighbors had no idea that a nearby facility could explode and rip apart their homes. When I bought the place, if I would have known something like that, I mean, I had many houses to choose from. If I knew they had the chemical like that or uh, there was some more regulations and stuff that I was aware of, I could have maybe made a different decision. Thousands of Houston-area residents know exactly what Peters is talking about. Right, because Houston, the fourth most populous city in the nation, is unusual. Houston has no zoning. It even says so right on the city's website. There are some restrictions, but at the end of the day, a lot of chemical facilities operate really close to a lot of homes in Houston. Rob Kwok is an attorney for Frank Peters and other plaintiffs. He says a lot of people like the lack of zoning. A lot of people, young people, enjoy it in the city of Houston because you live next door to a a restaurant or a pub and you can go there and relax and unwind and just walk home without having to drive. And so there are benefits to it and it's what makes the city unique. Uh, But I do believe when people are buying homes and their children are sleeping in bed, that they need to know that there is a chance that that facility down the road, this is what they do and this is what could happen. So in Houston, you can live very close to a company that handles toxic chemicals. And the worst part is, you might not even know. But this lack of information isn't Houston's fault. It's Texas's. Right. In the 80s, the federal government passed what's known as the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act. It's kind of a long name, but it does exactly what it sounds like. It says the public has a right to know what hazardous chemicals are stored in their neighborhoods. The goal is to help communities and local governments prepare for chemical accidents. Well, if you live near a chemical plant, or you work inside a chemical facility, or you have to respond to fires and explosions at a factory that uses hazardous chemicals, it's in your direct interest to understand what the risks are. This is Rick Angler. He's had a long career in chemical safety. Until last year, he sat on the federal agency that investigates chemical disasters, the Chemical Safety Board, which we'll come back to in a moment. But first, more about public information. To put it lightly, Angler's not a big fan of how the Texas state government interprets that law we mentioned, the Community Right to Know Act. It is outrageous that the Texas political leadership and power has distorted the intent of the federal Community Right to Know law to prevent information from getting in the hands of workers in the public. After 9-11, Homeland Security became top of mind for a whole lot of people. And in some cases, it trumped other priorities. 
In Texas, the argument around the public right to know basically went something like this. Hazardous chemicals are a threat to homeland security. If the public has access to this information, Texas will be vulnerable to a terrorist attack. Homeland security is more important. And this is allowed under state law. Part of the Texas Code allows information to be withheld if it's deemed a homeland security threat. Now, in 2021, it's almost impossible for members of the public or journalists to get basic information from the state of Texas about many chemical facilities. Where they are, what chemicals they store, how much they store, it's all confidential. The state provides this information to local agencies like fire departments, but again, not to the general public. Even in the unzoned city of Houston, even to people who live near these facilities. And the lack of public information affects the whole state. Right, people can't get information on hazardous chemical facilities across the state. The lack of transparency for sure affects urban areas like Houston, but also rural areas. Right. Think about propane storage tanks in unincorporated areas of Texas, where there's also no zoning. And fertilizer plants in farming country. Some of them are built in the middle of towns. And fertilizer plants can absolutely explode, as we saw in 2013 in the city of West, which we'll talk about later in this series. But all of this is to say the lack of public information about dangerous chemicals affects almost every part of Texas. And again, homeland security is a big motivation for state officials withholding this information. They have the ability to withhold certain information if they believe that the material could be weaponized or used to, you know, do illegal things. That's Houston Fire Chief Sam Pena. As fire chief, he does have access to all the information. And he says there should be a way to let the public know without endangering security. There's got to be a middle ground to ensure that the community knows that there is a hazard that exists in that, uh, in that facility or in their neighborhood uh, and still protect the uh, security. The federal law is pretty clear and, and says the community has the right to know and, and we should be providing uh, the information to them, you know, to make a, a proper decision on, on where to move or what exists or what hazards are, are in their are in their neighborhoods. He says this state legislative session, the city is planning to ask the TCEQ, the state environmental agency, to change some of the language or come up with a fix so that basic information on hazardous chemicals can be released to the public. That would be a big help, a big help to our community and to and to our residents, right? To to understand what exists in their in their community. For now, though, local governments can't do much about this rule other than complain. But the City Council of Houston did make one change after the explosion at Watson. Right, right. They closed a loophole. So in the past, regulations were more lax if you stored chemicals outdoors rather than indoors, which was the case at Watson. But now, regardless of where companies store toxic chemicals, outside or inside, they have to follow stricter requirements. And that also means they're now inspected yearly by the fire department. Here's Houston City Council member Amy Peck. She represents the district where the explosion took place. People were asking me in the months after the explosion, what's going to be done? What's going to happen? Are we making any changes to make sure that this won't happen again? So city council tightened some regulations for businesses with hazardous materials. But Peck says more needs to be done at the state and federal level. There's other issues too, such as 
the buildings that are storing hazardous materials that we don't even know about. That's what really worries me because there are some buildings out there that are just kind of sitting there and no one knows what's happening in those buildings. She wants the state government to lower the reporting requirements. That would mean even companies with smaller amounts of chemicals would need to report what's on site. At the city level, more changes are expected this year, including a bigger hazmat team. But keep in mind these changes only apply within the city of Houston. They don't touch other parts of Harris County, where there are still plenty of industrial facilities. So earlier, we mentioned there's a federal investigation into the Watson explosion. Before we wrap up, let's meet the agency doing that investigation. The Chemical Safety Board. It's a small federal agency with a very big job. A huge job. It investigates chemical disasters. But it doesn't have enforcement power, it doesn't regulate, and it certainly doesn't create new policy. Instead, every time there's a chemical disaster, like the Watson explosion, the small team of about a dozen investigators gets to work. They try to find the root causes of a chemical disaster. At the very top of the agency, there's a board. It usually has five members. Let's go back to Rick Angler. Remember, he was on that board until last year. The board investigations are very important because they're not simply based on evaluating whether a particular law was broken, but rather the full range of factors that could lead to an industrial chemical disaster. And what could change to prevent a similar one? They issue recommendations. And the recommendations carry weight because of the scientific credibility of the agency. History has demonstrated that many CSB recommendations have been adopted, which have led to safer workplace and communities. And here's what we, as journalists, love about this agency. They release the investigation results and recommendations publicly. And they publicly track whether or not the recommendations have been completed. But again, the recommendations are just that, recommendations. They're addressed to just about anyone and everyone who could make some key change. Companies, industry groups, state and federal agencies. More often than not, the recommendations are fulfilled at about an 80% rate. But nationally, more than 130 have not been. And 28 of those are for accidents in Texas. Right. We're talking about things designed to prevent everything from fires at oil refineries to chemical plant explosions to gas leaks. 28 recommendations, 28 things that could change to prevent future disasters. To prevent Texans from waking up in the middle of the night thinking they've been bombed, their windows shattered and their homes knocked off their foundations. Here's Rick Engler again. I think that more incidents are inevitable unless there is a serious commitment by the state of Texas, as well as by the leadership of the United States government, to move forward, not back, on the issues of chemical safety. So in this episode, we talked about some changes to improve chemical safety in Houston, a city that's both unzoned and a major petrochemical hub. But remember, it took a deadly explosion in a residential neighborhood to bring about those changes. Next time, a massive fire that burned for days, polluting the air and water up and down the Houston Ship Channel. A lot of smoke. It was burning. There was no control. It made me really, really sick. 
Yeah, stay home. They request you not to be out and about to uh, make sure your doors and windows are shut and turn your air conditioners off. And we'll ask what the state of Texas is and isn't doing to protect Texans from chemical disasters. The point is you want to monitor it before there's an explosion. There's nothing to stop them from getting money when they're actually hearing a case about these same companies. So it's now getting to the point where here locally, we have to get together as a community to defend ourselves. Fire Triangle is reported and produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh. And Katie Watkins. Our editor is Kitty Isley. Fact-checking by Claire Hyman. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati. Special thanks to David Martin Davies, Dan Katz, Dave Failing, Lori Johnson, Lori Eisensee, and Report for America, a nonprofit national service organization that places journalists like me in local newsrooms to report on undercover issues. Fire Triangle is a production of Texas Public Radio in collaboration with Houston Public Media.